hello, and welcome again to another edition of The Daily Bolt with your host, Dr. Jeff Tilley. Today's topic, air pollution politics and policy, a quagmire with no silver bullets. Okay, this is an interesting topic to dive into. This is a topic that could probably take an hour or two hours or three hours or four hours to adequately resolve on the podcast. But we are not going to spend that amount of time. What I'm trying to basically tell you with that statement is this is an extremely complex topic. And there are really not any good solutions that you could call silver bullets. As much as you might want to try and pretend that there are, in reality, once you start delving into air pollution policy, politics, and solutions to improve the nation's air quality, you end up dealing with a host of sectors, a variety of competing interests, and even just some science issues that are problematic in terms of how they work into all those things, the politics, the policy, the competing interests, everything. Scientifically, one of the biggest and probably easiest to understand aspects of the problem is that often air pollution is produced in one place and it affects someplace else downstream. This means that the people who often benefit from the production of the pollutants are different than those that might be harmed by the pollutants. Although there is definitely overlap, and there is certainly overlap when you're dealing with things like greenhouse gas emissions that are part and parcel of the air pollution that we experience every day. In particular, carbon dioxide, one of the strongest greenhouse gases, and also methane, another strong greenhouse gas, which part per part is actually a more effective greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide is, but there's a lot less of it. So when we talk about air pollution, we talk a lot about energy. And this is one of the things that's complex about the air pollution problem, is that it involves the energy sector, intersecting with the environmental sector, intersecting with all sorts of other things downstream that impact the general economy of a state, a city, a region, the whole country, or even the entire globe. And that means that anything that you try to do to control pollution, there will be winners and losers in terms of the arguments. There is very little of a win-win ground in terms of ultimately dealing with air pollution politics and policy. Say you're a power company, and you're a company. It's not a state-run entity. It's not part of the government. You're a business. You're trying to provide a service, a product, to people at the lowest possible price to them, and especially to you, so that you can make profits that you can then distribute to your shareholders, who get very unhappy and start calling for your heads if you're the CEO or the president of the board, and your company is not making money because maybe you're spending a lot on air pollution control technology and you're not somehow recouping the costs. That's one set of losers. 
The people downstream who have to deal with the air pollution are also losers. And the fact is there are no technologies that can completely remove all pollutants from the air, and particularly all greenhouse gases. So regardless of where you are in the spectrum, you may be a winner or a loser. In fact, you might even be both at the same time. It can be very nice to talk about utopian solutions, but ultimately, the web is extremely complex when it comes to dealing with air pollution. You can talk about non-polluting technologies. Some of these are also renewable energy sources, but even those sources have their own forms of controversy and their own roadblocks that often, again, are pitting one group against another. And so the politics of energy and air pollution often become something that's really controlled locally by the people involved in terms of, let's say you've got a big coal burning plant out in Wyoming. Wyoming has a significant amount of its economy tied up within energy, whether it's coal, whether it's uh, fracking for oil, whether it's natural gas, it deals with energy. Significant amount of the economic livelihood of the state depends on it. And you can't necessarily impose enormous amounts of restriction on it that will take away their profitability because that way, ultimately, people lose their jobs. And even more than that, you really can't get away from one basic underlying fact. Until we as humans globally commit to dramatic, and I mean dramatic, reductions in our energy consumption, as population increases, the demands for energy are going to continue getting more and more and more urgent. And we're going to have to basically exploit every possible source. Well, what are those possible sources? We have the fossil fuels, which are problematic for air quality as well as potentially being greenhouse gases. Well, they are greenhouse gases and potentially causing climate changes that are irreversible, at least in terms of our lifetimes. So you have coal, you have oil, you have natural gas. You have so-called renewable technologies. You have solar, you have wind. Those are fine uh, and well and good in terms of what they can do potentially, except that in many places where you need to put in particularly wind energy, there is no electric power grid available to take the energy. You have to build a new power grid. That takes a lot of money and it's been something that very few people have been willing to pay for. In fact, there have been political controversies in various states about renewable energy companies getting subsidies to develop technologies without the utility companies getting subsidies to develop the power grid that you need to transmit all that. And once again, who pays? This is ultimately the underlying question behind all of it. Who pays? You could try and put a head energy tax on every individual and that would definitely produce funds. That's something though that people in some parts of the country would be very happy in paying. Others would not be very happy in paying and they let their elected officials know. And once again, it comes down to very tricky politics, which we have seen uh, very little effective resolution. Granted, 
it isn't necessarily good to put one's head in the sand either. And putting one's head in the sand can often be a very effective way to avoid an argument. And the trouble is, these issues are going to take and require a lot of arguments. Because, again, you have one group of individuals and entities not necessarily in the same states or countries as those who are affected by the products that they produce, the pollutants, the sulfur dioxides, the nitrogen oxides, the volatile organic compounds, the carbon monoxide, the ozone, the particulates. Some of the technologies have been there and they've been very effective. Efforts to reduce sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides out of coal burning plants in particular have been very effective. It took uh, decades before technology that was available when the original Clean Air Act was passed in 1970. Those technologies were available, but it took decades for them to be effectively implemented and we've seen those emissions go down. And yet, there are issues across the world with the fact that the demand for coal is not really decreasing. And in particular, as oil and natural gas prices continue to rise, the demand for coal as a cheaper alternative will come back up. So these issues, it's not something you can make a simple law and pass and make work. The world, and even the U.S., is much more complex than it was 48 years ago when the original Clean Air Act was passed. And so it's no wonder that these issues continue to be debated, argued over, and ultimately uh, very little progress is actually being made. When we add in the further complication of the fact that there are desires to reduce the overall carbon dioxide coming out of many fossil fuel sources, this requires a whole new level of cleaning technology and there are at least five viable alternatives that could be developed. All of them are extremely expensive to develop. Again, who pays? What are the costs? These are questions we need to ask. Rather than just getting onto the airwaves, getting on your keyboard and spewing all sorts of commentary on what the EPA administrator is or is not planning to do, we need to be talking about all this as a country, as a society, and as people. What are acceptable costs? Who's willing to pay for what? And what are the best strategies for doing it? There would be some who argue that market-based strategies, such as the carbon credits and cap-and-trade type of policies, can be effective. But the evidence is still out in terms of whether, in the long run, these policies will actually produce real incentives for the development of the technologies and the willingness to pay for them. Regulation has a role. But historically, something that's incentive-based will have a much better chance of succeeding. The challenge to our elected officials and to us as citizens is to come up with ways of incentivizing the development of technologies that can reduce air emissions from both vehicles and from industry 
in such a way that it's not one group pays for for it and everybody else gets the benefit. This is a cost that's going to need to find a way to be spread around somehow and made maybe not fair, but at least something that makes sense. Food for thought on a Sunday afternoon. That's all for this edition of the Daily Bolt. I'm Dr. Jeff Tilley. If you like this podcast, then like us, share us, subscribe to us. We're on iTunes. And become a patron. Help us grow. Help us expand. For now, good afternoon, good night, good morning, depend on whenever you're listening to this. And God bless.